Welcome to the Gateway Church Podcast. We're so glad you're here. We pray God speaks to you through this message and through His Word today. For more information about our church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Now let's tune in to this week's message. We're going to spend two weeks together talking about the anointing of God and specifically the oil, which oftentimes in Scripture, one of the things that oil most often represented was the anointing. Now, some of you may have a little bit of charismatic PTSD. And so when you hear the phrase anointing oil, you, you start to shake a little bit and not the good kind of shake. Because maybe you have seen it, and I'm not making light or making fun of anyone. I, I'm, I'm just kind of pointing to the fact that sometimes we can have a, a, a bad habit of rejecting something that is scriptural, scriptural because maybe we haven't seen it done in the most scriptural of ways. And I just want to remind you, okay, when we read God's word, we never need to be afraid of it. All right? Can we agree on that? If you got a Bible, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 25. What we're going to be talking about this week and next week, this is a two-part sermon. And the title of the message is, Are You Low on Oil? Are You Low on Oil? We've had a, a truck in our family for about 16 plus years. It's a 2001 Ford F-150. This is my favorite truck that I've ever driven. And here's why. Because this truck has treated my family better than any vehicle I've ever owned. And the way I measure how a vehicle treats me is how much it costs me. And this particular vehicle literally has been the most low maintenance vehicle on planet Earth. I bought Holly a brand new Suburban years ago. It was the first time we'd ever bought a, a brand new car. And I, I mean, she loved that thing. And within three years, that thing started costing me a fortune. Okay, I hated that thing. I, I was willing to give it away when we traded it in. Okay, because it, the engine started having troubles before it was even six years old. My Ford, that thing is now almost 20 years old. 212,000 miles. And that bad boy kisses me on the forehead every month when I don't make a payment and it costs me nothing to drive it. Okay? And my daughter, who's now 17, she now drives that truck. And a couple years ago, I was about 150,000 miles. I took it into our car guy and our guy said, hey, this truck is awesome, but it's leaking oil. And the more you drive it, the hotter things get, the more it's going to leak. So if you will just stay on top of the oil, this car will get you to 250,000 miles. Okay. Admittedly, well, I was at 150,000 miles. I, every day I drove it, it was like gravy because I just expected it to completely explode one day on the 101. When he said, this thing can get you to 250,000 miles, if you, if you call this your church home, you know something about me. I'm intensely competitive. When he said 250,000 miles, I was like, challenge accepted, bro. I didn't even know this was our goal. Now I do. And he said, if you don't stay on top of the oil, this car 
will immediately become worthless. I wonder if that's not a word for the church today. If you will stay on top of the oil, this vehicle called your life will take you places you never imagined possible. But if you don't stay on top of the oil, in this day and time, as it relates to building God's kingdom on the earth, this little vehicle called your life, not going to be worth so much as it relates to building God's kingdom in these days. Matthew chapter 25, I believe, is a picture of what I just described to you. This is what is commonly referred to as an, an end times parable that Jesus tells. Okay? He, he has just, in, verse, in chapter 24, he's just talked about in the last days. And so at the beginning of verse 1, Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says, then. He uses the word then. And what he's talking about is in the last days. In those days. All right? That's the then he's referring to. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. I like those words right there. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, no, lest there should not be enough for us and you. We can't share this oil. Watch what they say next. But go rather to those who sell and buy oil for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord. Now, th this term, this title, Lord, is an intimate title. Okay? It, it speaks to a connection. Now, there's a lot of debate on whether or not this parable is talking about salvation or if it's talking about relationship. There's a ton of debate on this, and I'm not going to say one or the other, but here's what I would point to. Jesus doesn't curse the five foolish, and you're going to see in a minute, he doesn't open the door, but he doesn't curse them like he did in some of the other parables and places where he was teaching on this separation. While they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with them to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open the door to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I don't know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming." If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. If you're not taking notes, I'm begging you to take notes these next two weeks, all right? I'm not gonna make a joke out of it. I, I just, I really want you to take notes. I know we're not handing out the notes the way we normally do because of COVID, but that doesn't mean 
I don't want you taking notes. To the extent you hear God speaking is the extent to which I want you to immediately respond by writing it down. Okay? And you do such a great job of that. But I want you to write this down. There are a couple of really important one-liners in this message, and this is the first one. The closer we get to Christ's return, the more crucial a role the oil will play. That is the point of this parable. Many have taught this and made it about, hey, you don't, you don't want to be kept out on the outside. Okay, the point of the parable is the oil. All right? The closer we get to Christ's return, the more crucial a role the oil will play. Now, one of the things the five wise virgins say who had oil to the five foolish virgins who did not have oil, they say, hey, it's not bad that you want oil. We just can't give you ours. So go buy for yourself some oil. What we're going to be talking about these next two weeks, where do you get the oil? Where does the oil come from? And, and I really feel like there are a couple of things I felt the Lord show me in Scripture I've never even noticed before, and that's always a fun thing. I never want to come to a text or to God's Word and, and just assume I know what it means. And one of my favorite things is when the Holy Spirit reveals something I've never noticed or seen before in God's Word. Well, that happened a couple of times with these two messages. We're going to walk through six different types of of oil. In other words, six different ways to increase the measure of oil in your life in these days, all right? Here's point number one, the first type of oil, the oil of consecration. The oil of consecration. Exodus chapter 40, verse 9. This is God speaking to Aaron. Take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all its furnishings to consecrate them and make them holy. Anoint the altar of burnt offering and its utensils to consecrate them. Then the altar will become absolutely holy. Okay, this word holy means set apart. We act like the word holy means perfect. It means set apart, altogether different. God is saying, listen, I want you to understand and everyone understand the utensils in this tabernacle are altogether different than utensils anywhere else. And one of the ways I want you to remember that is I want you to take the oil and I want you to consecrate. Dip in the oil. Cover in the oil. And therefore be reminded these are set apart utensils in the house of the Lord. Let me give you a definition of the word consecration. It means the separation of oneself from things that are unclean. The separation of oneself from things that are unclean, especially anything that would contaminate one's relationship with a perfect God. I know that's loaded right there, but here's another way to say it. If you're not consecrated, you're contaminated. I know that's kind of strong, but if I'm not consecrated, if I'm not set apart, not better than, but a set apart utensil for the kingdom of God, then I am contaminated like all the other utensils. 
the oil of consecration. Is it possible that as believers, we have so maximized the grace of God, and we should, that at the very same time, we have minimized holiness. That, that as believers, we just think that, oh, well, God's so gracious. Jesus died for all my sins, so it's just okay. When I screw up, it's just okay. When I willfully sin, it's okay. Jesus died for it. Have we gotten so keyed in on the grace of God that we have minimized holiness? Well, Preston, you're, you're preaching legalism. Am I? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Be ye holy, just as I am holy. Not be ye perfect, Preston, just as I am perfect, says the Lord. Be ye set apart altogether different than what everyone else is seeing on the earth. Be ye set apart, Preston, just as I am set apart, just as I am altogether different from anyone or anything. We are called as believers to be set apart. If you're taking notes, write this one liner down. When you're called to be apart from you must be careful what you're a part of. When you are called to be apart from, you must be extremely careful what you are a part of. It's entirely possible that some of us have muddied up the waters of God's grace by responding with an attitude other than holiness, to be separate. Here's another way to say it. What's going to win the world isn't being like them, but being like him. That's nasty right there. Well, Preston, I, I, I believe in missionary dating. I, I personally have taken it upon myself to date those who are lost. Because I've just found it's a wonderful way to lead people to Christ. Bubkiss. Bubkiss. Stop lying to yourself. Okay? I'm not trying to harp on you. I'm just trying to remind you. What's your plan? to marry someone who doesn't believe in Jesus and help raise your children outside of the fear and admonition of the Lord? Not a good plan. Well, Preston, I'm going to win them to Christ. Pretty bold talk. Okay, listen. How can two walk together unless they're in agreement? One of the things we've got to agree on is that as believers, we're called to be set apart. What's going to win the world isn't being like them. Hear me, I'm not saying that we're better than. What I'm saying is we're called to be different than. And when I get on online and I see the way many believers are behaving, and I, I, I'm, I'm not exempt from this, the question I ask is not are they good or bad, it's are they different? Are the lost people in their lives who are watching their social media feed looking and going, man, they are altogether different. And I wanna figure out why. 
Joshua chapter three, verse five, one of my favorite chapters in scripture. This is right before the Israelites cross the Jordan River. And Joshua has just stepped in as God's man to lead them. And listen to what Joshua says in Joshua chapter three, verse five. Then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves, set yourselves apart. Now, your translation might say purify yourself, which is literally what he meant. Consecrate yourselves. Why? For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Joshua is saying tomorrow begins a new day. And what you need to do is to clean up. Now listen, this is, I don't have the time to go through this, but this was a huge statement Joshua was making. Think about the context. The, the nation of Israel had been wandering through the wilderness, the desert, for 40 years. Okay, have you ever been into a Middle Eastern desert before? It's not as though there is water everywhere. And Joshua is saying to them, think about this, because they were always on the move and because there wasn't water everywhere, if they had to choose a primary option for water, do you think it was hygiene or hydration? It was hydration. I was outside uh, working at the house yesterday and I was outside most of the day. It wasn't even 115 the way it's been the last couple weeks. I, I set a personal record for waters, 11 cans of water yesterday. Why? Because the desert zaps you, it dehydrates you. Most of the time, water for the Israelites at this time was used for hydration. And Joshua says, listen, I know you're used to drinking the water, but tomorrow begins a new day and it's time to use that water to wash off because some of y'all stank. Purify yourselves, consecrate yourselves. Why? For tomorrow, God is going to do wonders among you. Write this one-liner down because it's my favorite in the last couple of years. When purity is a priority, you will live out what others can only read about. That is filthy in a clean way. Three of you got that joke. When purity is a priority, you will live out what others can only read about. I have dreamt since I was a boy of being a part of a move of God, but I will never get to play any role whatsoever if I so muddy up the waters of the kingdom with unholy living, and I'm going to mess up. You're going to mess up, but we are called to be set apart as utensils that can be used for the kingdom of God. The oil flows when we consecrate ourselves, set ourselves apart. Here's point number two, second type of oil, the oil of correction. Never seen this before in my life. The oil of correction. How many of us would say we love to be corrected? Just, just put your hand up. For those of you at Tempe, watch it online. Just put your hand up. You love to be corrected. Okay, here in Scottsdale, I don't see any hands up. Let, let's, the other side of the coin. How many of us hate to be corrected? Just put your hand up. Put it up high. Okay, this is a setup and you're going to regret raising your hand just now. <laughs> if you are afraid of correction, it usually points 
to a lack of confession. Correction is a really good thing that we should never be afraid of. Here's why. There is nothing to fear when you have nothing to hide. Just ask Adam and Eve. Before they fell, the scripture tell us that they wandered around the garden in the presence of God afraid? No, it wasn't until they felt they had something to hide. Think, just think about the purity of this place for a minute. They are walking around in the unbridled presence of God, buck naked. What was the last time when you were thinking about what you'd wear to church that you thought, you know what I'm going to do? Happy birthday. I'm going to church naked. Okay, none of us think that way. Thank God. And if you do, we'll have you arrested. I just like to say. We don't think that way because we are trained to cover up. Remember what Adam and Eve did when they sinned. They went from being completely uncovered. Let's have a more mature conversation. They, They went from being completely uncovered. Nothing was covering them up in the presence of the Lord. Nothing was getting in the way of their relationship with him. And then the second sin entered the equation, they hid. You know what one of the best parts about reading through Genesis 3 is? God still went after him and found him. <laughs> Even though they hid. Listen to me. You might be in a place where you royally screwed up this week. I mean, you know what you did was wrong. You, you crossed a line that you know was ungodly. Can I just remind you, while Jesus never hides your sin, Jesus always covers your sin. Well, Preston, what's the difference between hiding and covering? Because in my world, they're the same thing. No, they're not even close to the same thing. See, hiding is when you run away from him. Covering is what happens when you run to him. Hiding is what happens when I deal with my sin. Covering is what happens when I let Jesus deal with my sin. Jesus will never cover my sin, never hide my sin. But every time when I come to him, he covers my sin. He won't hide it. And hear me, that doesn't mean he's going to expose you. One of the things I've learned is every time I try and hide my sin, I am actually exposing myself. But every time I run to him, he covers my sin. Let me show you this oil of correction because you may be wondering where this comes from. Psalm 141, verse 5. Never seen this before in my life. Psalm 141, verse 5. This is King David writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. David says this, Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. The word here is correct. Literally means to correct. Let him correct me, for it is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. One of the ways 
And I've never seen this before, never thought about it before. One of the ways that oil flows in my life and yours is when we embrace correction. When I was growing up at Gateway in Dallas, uh, I started on staff there when I was 21. And I, to this day, Gateway just turned 20 years old this, this past Easter. I, to this day, contend that in the 20 year history of Gateway Church, no one has ever been corrected more than yours truly. J- just ask, send an email to Pastor Robert and just ask one simple question. Who's been the most corrected person in the history of Gateway Church? You will get a one word response, Preston. It's me. And I don't wear it like a badge. One of the reasons I was so corrected is the first couple of years I was, I was such a donkey. And donkeys just have to be corrected, okay? They, they gotta be slapped to get going in the right direction. I, I, that was me, okay? But here's one of the things, and I've never thought about this before. I got to a place after a while where I started embracing correction. When Robert would come to me and he would say, hey, I have a question for you, which by the way, was always a setup for a spanking. It seems so sweet, but I, I, figured, I figured his little thing out. When he would put a question mark on the end of it, the paddle was halfway to my behind, okay? Here's what I learned about correction. Every time I embraced it, God bless me. And I didn't understand it at the time. Here's something I learned about correction. Correction is when someone loves you enough to remove a blockage in your life. Think about if oil went like this, just in a tube going, going from heaven to earth, and, and there's a blockage in the tube over my life. Correction is when someone sees the blockage and they love me enough to confront me. Think about what David is saying. Let the righteous person correct me for it is oil upon my head. Let not my head refuse this oil. If anybody had the right to be afraid of correction, it was King David. You remember what happened when when God sent Nathan to confront him about Bathsheba? It was the most gangster story, set up story I've ever seen. Nathan tells this story that, that incenses David and he wants to just kill somebody. And then Nathan drops the bomb and goes, you are that man. If anybody had a right to be afraid of correction, it was David. But clearly, King David had figured out something supernatural happens when I receive correction. Here's another way to say it. How ready you are to be anointed is measured by how well you handle being admonished. A few of us need to write that one down. How ready you are to be anointed is measured by how well you handle being admonished. Now, if you have messed up here recently, and I mean royally messed up, you're walking with your head down, you're afraid to look God in the eyes, and you're just waiting for this divine whooping, Okay, let me remind you, God doesn't spank in anger. 
And in fact, he says, those whom I discipline, I love. Every time God corrects me and I allow him, something supernatural happens. That's why King David said, hey, don't reject the oil that comes from correction. It's not worth missing out on. Now, 2 Samuel chapter 12 is the confrontation of correction when the prophet Nathan comes to as, as not just one of David's best friends, but as the man God sent to confront him with correction. And at the end of 2 Samuel 12, God lays out the punishment, and it's strong. God says, listen, because of the way you have defiled the Lord God Almighty, this baby you have had with Uriah's wife is going to die. And then we move into the next part. So for seven days, the baby was afflicted and David fasted and prayed and it got so intense that his friends thought he was going crazy. He was legitimately petitioning God to stay the order of death. And on the seventh day, the baby died. And I want to show you, and remember, his friends thought he had gone crazy during those seven days. He wouldn't eat. They thought he'd lost his mind. And now the baby dies. The punishment has come. And I want you to see in verse 20 of 2 Samuel chapter 12, what David does. So David arose from the ground. He washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. If you have royally screwed up here recently and you find yourself running away from God because you're so embarrassed, you're so afraid of the confrontation of correction, that you're on the run. Hopefully, I'm catching you before you go any further to remind you. Look at what David did. He got up. He washed himself. He anointed himself. This is the same guy who had been anointed as a boy by the prophet Samuel. Samuel anointed him. And when that happened, it was because God had chosen him as the next king of Israel. Being anointed was important to David. And here's what I love about verse 20 of 2 Samuel chapter 12. David didn't go and have somebody else anoint him. He anointed himself. He anointed himself. He washed himself. He anointed himself. And then don't skip this part. He changed his clothing. Okay, these three things were synonymous with a new beginning. David got up after his punishment and he said, it's a new day. I did wrong. And I'm not doing that again. So I'm going to purify myself. I'm going to wash myself. I'm going to anoint myself. I'm going to remind myself I've been set apart 
for the God of the universe. And then I'm going to change my clothes, which to me looks a lot like repentance. I'm not wearing that old nasty outfit ever again. That got me in bed with another man's wife and even led me to have him killed. I'm changing my clothing. Here's what you need to remember. Especially if you have really messed up here recently. One of the best things about being a new creation in Christ Jesus is there's never a bad time for a new beginning. And some of us are in need of a new beginning. It's time. I know you have tons of reasons why you haven't let that day come yet. But I know beyond any shadow of a doubt that there are some watching online at our Tempe campus and in this room right now who are in desperate need of a new beginning moment. Think about it. David had an affair with another man's wife and then had the man killed. I know you feel like what you've done deserves to keep you separated from the presence of God. David had just killed somebody. And yet he still believed in the power of God to such a point that he said, now that the baby's dead, I'm going to bring about new life. And here's what's awesome. In scripture, there's no accident. So a couple verses before what we read, God says, because of what you did with Uriah's wife, that's how he describes Bathsheba. And then after David washes himself, anoints himself, and puts on a new outfit, God says, hey, now I'm going to give your wife, Bathsheba had become his wife. I'm going to give you and your wife a baby. And it was King Solomon wisest man who ever lived. No matter where you are right now, no matter how bad things seem to you and how bad you've been, can I just remind you, there has never been a sin the blood of Jesus can't cover. Yes, there may be some discipline But I promise you, the enemy is trying to scare you from receiving correction because he has seen what happens when the oil of correction falls upon someone. That brings us to the third point. We're going to go through this one really quickly. The oil of intimacy. I preach on this enough. If you've never heard one of the messages that we've done here on intimacy, go back and listen to it. But the oil of intimacy... Oil is not possessed by the religiously observant. It is possessed by the romantically relentless. See, we look at the wise virgins and the foolish virgins, and we, if we're not careful, we turn it into a religious thing. And I want to remind you, the point of this parable is not religion. It's romantic relationship. Well, Preston, that's weird. Are you implying that I am supposed to have a romantic 
Another way to say romantic is intimate. Relationship with Jesus Christ? No, I'm not saying that. Jesus is. Jesus is. I didn't, I didn't come up with that. Jesus did. I, I'll prove it to you. Matthew 25, go back to verse 10. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. Okay, Jesus is telling this story. Who is he talking about? Himself. Himself. He is calling himself the bridegroom. I get asked from time to time from, by people who don't know Jesus or don't know God as father. They're not believers yet. And, and they'll say, what is God like? Well, here's rule number one. Always pay attention to the way God describes himself. If you want to know what God is like, don't listen to everybody else. First and foremost, listen to the way God describes himself. Jesus describes himself as the bridegroom. This is romantic terminology. Go study John 3. John the Baptist. John 3 is where we, many of us quote, I must decrease so that he might increase. And that's what he gets credit for saying. But does anybody remember what John the Baptist said just before that? It's the friend of the bridegroom who is ecstatic to just get to stand close enough to the groom to hear him talk. John the Baptist should be, we should give him more credit than just saying, I must decrease so that he might increase. No, he'd figured something out. He was saying, this is the bridegroom. And I'm just a friend of the bridegroom. And I'm just excited I get to stand close enough to hear him talk. Okay, if you were to describe your personal relationship with Jesus right now, would you use the word intimate? Because he sure wants to. Well, Preston, I don't know if I can have that. What's getting in your way? Why not? Jesus said, hey, greater love hath no man than to lay his life down for his friend. Jesus looks at you and says, hey, no one will ever love you more than me. Is that not intimate communication? But see, the enemy is trying to make the relationship between man and God religious. And here's why. Because it's dead. There's no life in that. There's no intimacy in that. Yeah, I might go on a date night with my wife, but if I act like a robot, there's no life in it. That's why Jesus said, hey, when you pray, don't babble on. Don't repeat the same things over and over like those guys. Here, that, that's the way romance talks. Don't monotonously just repeat the same thing over and over. Here's what Jesus is saying. Find a new way to say the same old thing because that's what love does. And yet so many of us are content to turn our relationship with Christ into a religious thing. And yet Jesus tells the story and says, hey, this is a romantic thing. Here's another way to say what I, what I believe Jesus is trying to help us understand. I get that everybody really keys in on the fact that I'm coming back as the king of kings and I'm going to rule and reign. I get that, but make no mistake, I'm not just coming back as the king of kings 
to reign over you. I am coming back as the bridegroom to have relationship with you. We're going to reign together. One of the biggest ways the oil is restricted from flowing in our everyday lives is a lack of intimacy in our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, to me, is one of the most amazing verses. Talking about husbands and wives, and some of the wives are flinching right now. I'm not going to read that part. Listen to this one verse. For husbands... This means love your wives. Well, how should I love my wife? Just as Christ loved the church, loved, an an intimate word. Just as Christ loved the church, he gave up his life for her. Listen to me. When you understand God's desire for you, it always awakens your desire for him. Without oil, Riley's truck is worthless. It's going nowhere. See, just coming to church on the weekend isn't gonna do it. You can take the truck to the shop once a week, every week, but if oil doesn't go into the engine, it's going to eventually burn up. And I'm not here to spank you today. I'm here simply to remind you, you have access to a supernatural oil. And the closer we get to Christ's return, the more crucial a role the oil will play. And hear me on this. We need you more than ever before. And you need oil more than ever before. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want you to take at both campuses, for those of you who are doing this with us online, I want you to take the communion elements. Just hold the the bread, the wafer, and the cup. Don't take them yet. Once you have them out, I just want you to close your eyes. And we're just going to have a holy moment, a set-apart moment. No matter what's going on in your week, no matter what's going on in your world, we're going to have a set-apart moment with the God of the universe. With every head bowed, every eye closed, I just want you to listen to this story before we take communion together. On Friday, I took my oldest son to go play golf. And he's 14 now. And like most 14-year-old young men, he's finding himself. Lots of changes going on. And just like I was when I was his age, there are times I see the sweet, and then there are times I see the boy who's wrestling. And it's caused me as his dad 
when I see those sweet moments, I eat them up. And we've started playing golf, just the two of us, every once in a while. And, and the first time we did, I, I immediately noticed. For some reason, it brings on the sweetest of sweet moments. His little heart just erupts and he just talks out of it for four straight hours. I just, as a dad, I just eat it up. So we were pulling into the golf course on Friday and the golf course is only a couple minutes away from our house and we hadn't even been in the truck three minutes, minutes and he starts pouring his heart out. And my heart just leapt. So I pull into the parking lot and I'm in my truck and I back into a parking spot and I was so distracted by listening to my son's heart that I didn't realize there was a tree hanging over the curb. And I pulled in a little too fast to the parking spot backwards and smashed my tailgate. Normally, under those circumstances, I would get really upset. But this time I didn't. Because I didn't want anything to get in the way of the moment I knew we were about to have together. And on about the fifth hole, I just felt the Lord say, you sure approach this one differently. You didn't get upset like you normally would. It's $500 to $1,000 worth of damage. And you acted like it was nothing. Can I just ask why? I mean, it's on the fifth hole in the fairway. And I said, because I didn't want anything to get in the way of what is happening right now. Because these moments are so sweet. And I just felt the Lord say, huh. now you know how I feel. And now you understand a little bit more why I did what I did. I shed my blood so that nothing would get in the way of intimate moments for the rest of eternity with you. You want to know why Jesus shed his blood for you? That's why. And maybe you don't know Jesus yet. And all you've heard is the hellfire and brimstone version of the gospel, but you've never heard the love. You're hearing it now. Jesus, the son of God, came to this earth to die for you. And if you ever ask why, you just heard it. Because he wanted nothing to get in the way of intimate fellowship with you for eternity. I want you to take the bread, which represents, just hold it for a moment, the body of Jesus that was broken for you. If you already took it, it's okay. Just hold it for a moment. His body was brutally beaten to the point of death. And his why wasn't just you. It was intimate fellowship with you. 
as you eat this bread here in a moment, if there is anything getting in the way of your intimate fellowship with him, the same way you're crushing this bread, I want you to crush whatever's getting in the way of your intimate fellowship with him. Jesus, thank you for allowing your body to be broken to the point of death. As we take this bread, we remember there is no one like you. There will never be anyone like you. You aren't just the king of kings. You're the bridegroom, the lover of my soul. Thank you for loving us more than anyone ever will. Jesus, as we take this bread, we remember you. Let's take the bread. The same way as we take the cup, which represents the blood of Jesus, which was shed for you to cover every one of your sins and mine. May you never, ever, ever forget the romantic why behind him shedding every drop of his blood. Jesus, thank you. Oh, you're right. Greater love hath no man than to lay his life down for another. I pray we would never, ever get to a place where we are blah about what you did on the cross. Your why was so intimate. He didn't want anything to get in the way of intimate fellowship with us for eternity. Jesus, as we take this cup, we don't just celebrate your blood, we celebrate you. We celebrate your love for us. Jesus, thank you for shedding your blood for me. Let's take the cup. You can just set your cup down for those of you at either campus, just with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. We're just gonna have a moment of worship here. We're in a moment of worship. I don't want us to be rushed. God's not in a hurry right now. Let's just sit with him. And let's sing from a deep place in our hearts. Let's worship the bridegroom.
Good. 
bowed, every eye closed. I have got to do one more thing before we dismiss. I cannot talk about the way Jesus loves you without giving you an opportunity to receive that love. Whether you're here at this campus or at Tempe or joining us online, if you don't know Jesus, if you've never experienced the love of Jesus before, something's going on inside of you right now and you just say, I, I want to meet Jesus. I want to know that kind of love. I've never been loved like that before. I, I want to receive the love of Jesus. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If that's you, would just put your hand up. Just put it up high wherever you are. I want to know the love of Jesus today. I want to spend eternity being loved by Jesus. Just put your hand up and you can put it right back down. Anybody else? If you put your hand up, I just want you to repeat this simple but powerful prayer after me. Dear Jesus, I want to be loved by you forever and ever and ever. Jesus, I've messed up. I know I've sinned. But I believe you're the Son of God who came to die on the cross for my sin. Jesus, will you forgive me of my sin? Would you remove anything that gets in the way of intimate relationship with you? Jesus, I believe God raised you from the dead. Because you were raised to life, I believe I can live a new life. Jesus, let today be a new beginning for me. Because I want to spend forever with you. In Jesus' name, amen. a special day. It's really grateful. Out of all the places God could be, I'm just grateful. He is here. And I hope as you go throughout your week this week, if you don't think religious thoughts, my prayer is that you would think intimately romantic thoughts with the one who proved you will never be loved like he loves you. May he see your response this week and may others see the result of it in your life. Let me pray a blessing over you and we'll be dismissed. God, thank you. Thank you. I don't know what else to say. Just thanks.
Your love is so good. May we be reminded that we're called to be set apart. We're called to live lives that don't draw attention to ourselves, but to you and your love. Father, would you use us this week to show the world your love. In Christ's mighty name. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about Gateway Church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Have a great week.